If you like Area 45, you're going to enjoy the Hoover Institution's other podcasts, Uncommon Knowledge, The Classicist with Victor Davis Hanson, and The Libertarian with Richard Epstein. Subscribe now to the Hoover Podcast at hoover.org slash podcasts. That's hoover.org slash podcasts. Hoover Podcast, ideas defining a free society. Hello, it's Tuesday, December the 5th, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Research Fellow. Joining me in studio here today on the Stanford University campus, Victor Davis Hanson. He is the Martin and Illy Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. His focus is on classics and military history. And we're talking about Victor Davis Hanson. That is the tip of the iceberg. He is also the proprietor of the podcast, The Classicist with Victor Davis Hanson. He is the author of hundreds of articles, book reviews, and newspaper editorials on Greek agrarian and military history and essays on contemporary culture. He writes a regular column for the National Review. He has written or edited 23 books, the latest of which is The Second World Wars, How the First Global Conflict Was Fought and Won. Victor, it's tiring just explaining all of that. How do you do this? (laughs) Oh, you don't have much of a life otherwise. But thank you for having me, Bill. My pleasure. So we're doing this on Tuesday the 5th. Two days from now is December 7th, which is the 76th anniversary of the attack of Pearl Harbor. How many Americans, Victor, do you think know what happened to Pearl Harbor? Uh, I think that question is predicated on how old they are. I think anybody under 50, I wouldn't imagine there were more than 20%. It's something that's not taught, and, and their parents have no frame of reference. So probably about 10% of those under 50. It is a passing generational thing. I don't think there is a single World War II veteran in Congress anymore, is there? I don't think there is. And all the accoutrements of Pearl Harbor that we used to think about, somebody like Carl Vinson, that you remember the Georgia congressman, Mm -hmm. 51 years in the Congress, 26 terms, and he was really the one who, who, in four naval appropriations bills in the 30, built and uh, made sure there was an entire fleet twice or three times actually the size of what was lost at Pearl Harbor, ready to be deployed within about 18 months, and some of it within six months. So much less does anybody remember who Carl Vinson, although there's a fleet carrier named right. after Right. So this is obviously an enormous conflict to talk about. We're talking pretty much 14 years of nonstop war if you go back to September 1931 and the Japanese invasion of Manchuria all the way to September 2nd, 1945 and the surrender in Tokyo Bay. 12.2 million American military personnel, Victor, were involved in the war in 1945. America's population at the time was about 140 million people, so that's 1 in 11, 1 in 12 Americans. By some estimates, 27 nations suffered 61 million fatalities. And yet, and yet, Victor, a poll from several years ago, about a quarter of teenagers in the United States surveyed were unable to identify Adolf Hitler as Germany's chancellor during the Second World War. They thought he was either a munitions maker, an Austrian premier, or the German Kaiser. A British poll of a few years back, Victor, asked teenagers and asked who said the words, we shall fight on the beaches. Only a third recognized that speaker as Winston Churchill. So is this time passing by, Victor, or is there something larger here in terms of inability to understand history? There's something larger because the figures that you just presented come at a time where uh, enrollment, although not graduation necessarily, is at an all-time high in college of American children. So then the question is, why are they not studying basic history? We're not talking about uh, the minutiae of the Peloponnesian War or the Reformation. We're talking about something that 20th century history. And I think the answer is that 
there's only so many hours in a day and two things are happening. One, students are engaged in social media, smartphones, video games, entertainment in a way that they have not been in the past. And then two, if you look at the curriculum of most schools, CSU, UC here in California, there's an, you, you can find an entire university where there's not a single course in World War II. And I've taught it at universities, and usually it's the only one taught as a visiting professor, but it's been crowded out by DASH, studies courses, ethnic studies, women's studies, leisure studies, environmental studies, peace studies. And these are usually therapeutic and not disinterested classes. They have a, a social or political agenda. And so the, the result, when you see these graduates and even the people who who graduate in four or five years is that they tend to be very ignorant of history and yet they have a sense of self, almost an arrogance, about their certainty on social uh, justice questions. And uh, it's kind of disturbing to see arrogance and ignorance in the same person. So Sammy Kay is rolling in his grave. Remember Sammy Kay, Swing and Sway with Sammy Kay, who had the song in 1942, Remember Pearl Harbor. Yeah, nobody does, unfortunately, or at least a new generation doesn't. And that's sad because what they have been taught about World War, my experience when I meet undergraduates, and I, I still teach at Hillsdale College, although they're exceptional, is they know three things about World War II, the Japanese internment, the dropping of the bombs at Nagasaki, but not so much Nagasaki. They know the word Hiroshima. Mm -hmm. And then they have some vague idea of Rosie the Riveter and that women worked in factories. And those, they came across that knowledge, or they were given that, or they imbued that knowledge, usually in courses that were not historical. They right. were therapeutic. Let's talk about the book. So the title of the book is Second World Wars with an S, and that's not a typo. No. Why did you pluralize it? Uh, for two or three reasons. One is that we know World War II, that nomenclature, usually after the uh, invasion of the Soviet Union on June 22, 1941, until then, people still referred to the World War, what we know now as World War One, or the First World War in the Anglosphere as the Great War. Mm -hmm. And those nine, uh, actually there are probably about ten border wars that Germany fought from Norway to Denmark, the Low Countries, Fran Fall of France, Yugoslavia, Greece, the Blitz. They won all but uh, one, the air campaign over Britain. They did not win, but they were seen as the German wars in Europe or the German-Norwegian war, or the German-French war. 1941 changed all that. So the book was trying to suggest this fluke of three things happening, the invasion of Soviet Union, six months later the attack on Pearl Harbor and British Singapore by the Japanese. And then the really inexplicable declaration of war by Italy and Germany on the United States. At that point, everybody understood it was now a true global war from the Arctic to the Sahara and the English Channel to the Volga and an even larger landscape in the Pacific from the Indian Ocean to the Aleutians and from Manchuria to to Hawaii. And uh, so that that's where the First World War... And then the other thing was I, I wanted to emphasize it was such a huge canvas and it was so diverse. Somebody off the coast of Miami in a submarine or 20,000 feet over the German homeland in a B-17 or a German crew in a tank or somebody fighting in, in Malaysia in the jungle. They had no common experience. And ideologically, I mean, a Bulgarian or a Hungarian really didn't know what his Japanese Axis counterpart was doing uh, in Burma, for example. So it, it was just diverse, both the way it was fought and the, the extent of where people fought, 
how, how large was the canvas and how di- uh, diverse it was. Let's uh, talk a bit more about that contradiction. Here you have the Axis powers, Germany, Italy, and Japan. And these are, these are nations which have one thing in common. They all lust for land. They all yeah. lust for empire. Yeah. And they base that upon building a military machine. Yet in the book, Victor, you say that they are strategically and military unprepared for a long-term war. I think they were. They, they had been very successful uh, because they had rearmed uh, in the 1930s. In the case of Japan, as early as 1930, and Germany started really in earnest about 1933-34. And uh, they all employed surprise attacks. They were surrounded by the winners of World War One, who were traumatized by that victory in the way that Germany, in the case of Germany, it was, it was energized by its defeat wanted to try it again. The winners never wanted to see anything to do with Germany again. And uh, because of that rapid success, both for the Japanese and Indonesia and and almost half of China and Italy and Somaliland and Libya, and then the Germans, of course, by May 1941, they had in their possession what we would call now the European Union. They had convinced themselves that this was because of their superior technology, strategy, leadership, and most of all, the fighting ability of their soldiers. And then they did something that just seems incomprehensible. They reversed that equation. So having a numerical superiority of maybe 10 to 1 over Britain, if you count all of the areas under Japanese and German domination, they found themselves in a war with the Soviet Union, the United States, and Britain, and they had... uh, in their own countries, they only had about 160 million. They were fighting an alliance of 400 million who had a GDP before the war about eight times not longer, uh, larger. And the United States by 1945 would have a larger GDP than all of the combatants right. on either side put together. So, so, they're, so they're caught in basically a war of both physical attrition and economic attrition. Yes. And then, the you know, Klauswitz's dictum that when you go into war, you have to have a way of ending it, they started an existential war. That was their, the logical uh, consequence of their ideology. They were going to destroy, they thought, Western democracy and the Soviet Union, but they had no means to reach uh, the means of production in the Soviet Union or in the United States. Soviet factories were beyond the Urals. The United States was so far distant, and they'd shown in Britain that they didn't have a four-engine bomber, and they did not have the capacity to destroy uh, British industry, and they didn't have the Blue Water Navy to reach really Britain or the United States. So, if you're turning out a, a um, B-24 one an hour in Detroit, in Germany or Japan, can't do anything about it. But we, because we have that global reach, we being the Allies, we could get to Rome and Berlin and Tokyo in a way they couldn't do um, the opposite. Well, Victor, the Nazi mindset would have been one of weakness. They would have viewed their Russian enemies as, as, as physically, genetically inferior beings who would collapse under fight, and they would have viewed the West as soft. Yes, and that's what Guderian, General Guderian said, you know, with one panzer division, I can throw these cowboys off. There was some, there was some um, evidence that supported their view because the Soviets had done very poorly uh, in a war with Poland in the 20s. Mm-hmm. They had not done well in Finland. They had not divided up Poland very effectively with the Germans. And uh, they had purged their officer corps. 
so that Hitler had contempt for them, making the cardinal mistake that Soviets always, Russians always fight very well in their homeland and not so well in their expeditionary forces. In the case of the United States, there had been a lot of Japanese liaison officers. Tojo had gone across on a train. Um, Admiral Yamamoto had been an attache and seen places like Harvard, and they came away uh, during the Roaring Twenties with the impression that we were a frivolous people and had come in late to World War One, not understanding the real message that we had landed two million people in 18 months in World War One without losing a single person. Speaking uh, of the U.S., what if Hitler in December of 1941, Victor, <clears throat> does something different? He does a pulls a 180-degree move, and instead of declaring war in the United States, what if he instead renounces his allies, Japan? What if he declares war on Japan on December 8, 1941, comes out in support of the United States? What does the U.S. government do? Well, from what we know about archives, the U.S. government was relieved. We don't even have to have that that extensive a counterfactual. If Hitler had have done nothing, he wouldn't have had a main alliance or renounced anything. If he just had shut up, and Mussolini along with him, I don't think there was any political will to declare war on the part of the United States against uh, Italy and Germany. We would have fought Japan. Mm -hmm. And I think Hitler, uh, given that we wouldn't have been bombing with the British and we wouldn't have tried to fight in Italy or Sicily, I think, I, I'm, these are unclear, these suppositions, but I think Hitler would have lasted till 1946 or 1947 till we took out the Japanese. And then, of course, had he been wise, uh, he cut the legs out from the Japanese in 1939 with the Molotov-Ribbentrop non-aggression pact with the Soviet Union. The Japanese paid him back in kind in April of 41, just when he needed an Eastern Front. And so when he invaded the Soviet Union, it was clear that Japan was not going to invade uh, from the East. And so... Uh, that freed up about 30 divisions for Stalin that were really important during the siege of Moscow in December. Are you a Winston Churchill fan? I am. Um, all, I, I'm kind of a pragmatist. I always ask myself, compared to what or what was the alternative? Right. And the alternative was Halifax and prior to him, Chamberlain and prior to Chamberlain, Baldwin. And they were all people of limited imagination and human nature. They didn't have the, the wealth of experience that Churchill did. And they had a therapeutic view of human nature. And Churchill understood what Hitler was about, that he saw weakness uh, and outreach and conciliation, not as magnanimity to be appreciated, but as, as something to be exploited. And he, and he didn't like that, but he just assumed that the strong dictate to the weak and the weak, you know, submit as they must, and, and that was a message that the British public and its leadership did not want to hear because they said, well, you know, we're coming out of the Depression, we, 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 we're still scarred by the Somme, and this crazy Victorian imperialist wants to get us in another war. Do you separate Churchill the leader from Churchill the tactician? Um, most people do. Uh, Churchill is usually, when you say it's Churchill the tactician or by association with the strategist, we right. tend to think Churchill was wrong about the uh, underbelly of Italy. Why would you invade Italy and, and get bogged down for four years? And going back to World War yes. I with Gallipoli. Yeah, and why would you go out into the Aegean? He was a 19th century thinker, so in his map of the Mediterranean um, and Europe, he still thought in terms of the British Empire, and in that case, going in and out of the Suez and the Eastern Mediterranean was very important. And he didn't quite understand uh, 
the changing nature of industry and oil and where these things were. But he, his mistakes were misdemeanors, and people like Stalin's in 1941 and Hitler's throughout the war were felonies. In other words, he did things or he advocated things that did not cost the Allies hundreds of thousands of men. Um, and he, for all his stubbornness, he had good instincts about Stalin and Hitler and the major players in the war. Now, not being aware of what you do in your spare time, and I'm not sure what spare time you have between all the writing and the fact that you also run a grape farm, but we're undergoing a sort of a, a wave of Churchill chic right now. If you watch a Netflix series called The Crown, which is mm -hmm. about uh, Elizabeth taking the throne in the early 1950s, John Lithgow plays Winston Churchill. Uh, if you go to the movies uh, over the Christmas holidays, you can see The Darkest Hour, which Gary Oldman takes the latest turn as Churchill. Victor, here's what Variety wrote about this in May of 2017. I'll quote this. As the U.K. reels, pardon me, just lost on the screen. As the, UK, as the U.K. reels from last summer's Brazil vote as France regroups in the wake of an intensely polarized presidential runoff and as President Trump courts controversy with every new pen stroke and tweet, film and television dramas have found inspiration in the individual who stood up to fascism when no one else would. Is Winston Churchill being used as a proxy for Donald Trump? It's hard to know, but uh, when we look at Churchill, I mean, he was the only uh, leader... There are certain things about Britain under Churchill we forget. He was the only leader uh, to stand up to Hitler all by himself in that period from the fall of France in late June of '40 to the invasion of the Soviet Union. He was the only person there. There was no other, there was no other um, Allied power that still survived. Stalin was on Hitler's side, so to speak. We weren't in the war. And then he was the only, it was the only country, it declared war on Hitler under Chamberlain, but it was the only country to fight from the first day to the last day, September 2nd. It was the only country that went to war, uh, not because it had been surprise attacked or surprise attacked someone else. Major country, it was, it, it went to war on the principle of protecting Poland. And a lot of these were, I mean, their early decisions were under Chamberlain, but they were influenced by, Churchill was pushing, pushing, pushing. And his great insight was that you could not talk to a man like Hitler. And, and Eden was just the same Anthony Eden. These are different people, and the people in the British ruling aristocracy had not ever seen men like Mussolini and Hitler rise into, take the realms, of, uh, the reins of power. And, and I think that's the parallel with Donald Trump. Donald Trump is a creature of the vicious Manhattan real estate market. And he has a certain animal cunning, and he understands how people think in North Korea, in China. And we do have a lot of Halifaxes in the State Department. And Trump basically says, you know, I saw this leader, I see this political opponent, and I, he thinks back and says, this is a guy that tried to sue me for my building, or this was an environmental group that tried to stop me, or this was a, a union boss, or this was a banker. So that type of... Uh, preparatory experience is probably just as valuable as getting a degree in public policy or, you know, foreign relations, diplomacy, et cetera, et cetera, from Harvard. 
Now, is Franklin Roosevelt getting his historical due? As I look at FDR, <coughs> here's what I see. First of all, there is no aircraft carrier named after Franklin Roosevelt yeah. in the Navy. There was one uh, named posthumously, and it served, I think, up until the 1970s or 80s, but there's no current active carrier with Roosevelt's name on it. Uh, we don't see FDR that much in movies. Uh, if you go back and see the movie Pearl Harbor, this mm. really kind of awful <laughs> adaptation of the attack, a big, big, splashy Michael Bay film. John Voight plays Franklin Roosevelt Victor, and there's a terrible scene where actually he rises I've out of seen the, that movie rises yeah. out of the wheelchair for crying out loud <laughs> uh, even even on PBS Franklin Roosevelt gets lumped in with Teddy in a long series about the Roosevelts if you will so he doesn't get his own stand-up moment but is Roosevelt getting overlooked in all of this I think a little bit I was very uh, when I went back and read about him in preparation for this book I was much more sympathetic I think part of it is that you know when he said Dr. Depression is over with and Dr. War is right. going to s- save us that there's a sense in the historical assessment of him that the New Deal, big government, um, Keynesian economic medicine didn't work. Mm-hmm. So from 32 to 40, it was basically a failure. And it was a failure that came at a high price of institutionalizing the administrative state. But then the war sort of jump-started us. So people say, well, you know, there's two Roosevelts. There's the guy who did, wasn't very effective. And we had another recession, 38, 39. And then there's Roosevelt, the commander-in-chief, very duplicitous, very dishonest, loose with the truth, personal life, very checkered. But he saw, like Churchill did, that you could not reason with Hitler or Mussolini or Tojo. And it was easier for him, I think, because he was a man of the left. He had a blind spot towards Stalin, of course. But if you look at the actual decision-making he, he made... His brilliance was he he delegated authority to some very, you know, George Marshall, Admiral Leahy, Ernie King, Ernest King. Boy, they were good people. And Hap Arnold, some of the best, uh, much better than their German, Italian, or, or Japanese counterparts in Supreme Headquarters. Since we just went through November 22nd and had to deal with the Kennedy conspiracy theories, let's deal with the Roosevelt conspiracy yes. theories. Let's just get them rid of the primary conspiracy theory being, Victor, that Roosevelt knew that Pearl Harbor was coming. Well, I think everybody knew that there was a Japanese attack coming. Mm -hmm. And the question was, could it be at Pearl Harbor rather than the Philippines? And it turned out to be both. But Admiral Richardson had said uh, in January when the decision was made to transfer the Pacific Fleet to to Mm -hmm. headquarter it or base it in, in Pearl Harbor, he said, this is a disaster. It's out there. It's exposed but we can't do anything about it. I think Hitler, uh, Roosevelt expected that there was going to be a war, and he he understood that he could not preempt that the American people at that point in their history would not go to war on their own initiative. They had to be attacked. He also knew, I think, that nobody had ever traveled 3,500 miles under radio silence and refueling in mid-December on the high seas. So he, he, he was complacent, but not because of a conspiratorial sense that he wanted the attack to happen. He thought that there would be a theater fighting maybe in the Philippines or that in their attack on British Singapore they might attack an American ship. That was enough for him. But I don't think anybody understood that the Japanese could send six fleet carriers and nobody would know as they pulled up 220 miles north of Hawaii. That just We couldn't do it. The next year when we tried the Doolittle Raid, 
right. we, we could not match that feat of seamanship. You know, this underscores in some respects how, how, in some regards, primitive warfare was 70 years ago, and that you could take a fleet and hide it in the Pacific Ocean. Today, you would have uh, air surveillance, satellite surveillance. You would find and, the fleet very And fast. even in 1941, the idea that you could take these, ma- you know, had, with, if you count the tankers and the support ships, you're talking 50, 60 major vessels, and you could do all that in midwinter, and Americans had air surveillance. They were flying over. Uh, they had friendly planes. They were they were, had some surveillance of, of what was going on in Yokohama, and they knew that these ships were dis- had disappeared for a while. But they thought they you know they'd gone into Indonesia, the Java Sea. They didn't, or the South China Sea. They didn't know where they were. But it was pretty amazing, you know, in mid because to take land and um, and take off on a on a choppy sea on a, on a 1941 carrier then have to fuel it constantly right. in winter was pretty amazing and sub-infested waters supposedly. Can you explain Roosevelt's knowledge of the Holocaust and what as the commander-in-chief he would have known was going on in Eastern Europe and what his options were in 1944 and 1945? Well I think as early as 1943 there had been people who had escaped from camps mm-hmm. And they had reached the West, and they had uh, contacted the British. And I think the, that that knowledge that there these were not just concentration camps, but they were death camps, and that they were something different than Dachau, at Auschwitz or Treblinka. And that, I think that knowledge was known. And then the question is, could you have done anything? And the answer is, I think now, I think Martin Gilbert wrote a good book about it once. The Allies, by a 19, late 19, early 1944, had the ability from bases in Italy to go into Eastern Europe and Poland and bomb Auschwitz and Treblinka, and they, I think, and they got very close to it on regular missions uh, at uh, uh, German plants and factories. They did bomb them 20 miles outside of Auschwitz. So had they bombed them, and we can say that with certainty because. They blew up two ovens and death facilities, the inmates they did themselves at Auschwitz, and it did cut down that daily toll from about eight to 9,000 a day down to four or 5,000. So he, we could have done that, and there was big pushback uh, from members of the State Department, the Liberal Democratic State Department, and they did not want uh, four or five million refugees coming into the United States. They had blocked it earlier. They did not uh, want to get on the bad side of Ira Eaker and Hap Arnold on diverting, bombing uh, strategic missions for humanitarian reasons. They thought that it would be open-ended. And then, to be honest, there was a lot of anti-Semitic people who believed that uh, the Jewish lobby, so to speak, had engineered a war in which we were allied with uh, what Hitler called you know, Jewish Bolshevism under in the Soviet Union, so that they were they were upset about that. Did you learn anything surprising about Harry Truman and the decision leading up to dropping the bomb? Yeah, I think I did. I had written about that before, but I think people have it sort of wrong about that, that there was an either or, either we drop the bomb or we have to invade and lo- lose a million men. I think the real choice was a triad. We either drop the bomb invade Japan, or we start using airfields and recently acquired Okinawa, which mm-hmm. was declared secure on July 2nd. And that would mean we have 2,500 B-29s operating now out of um, the Marianas that have a long flight back and forth. But they had destroyed by August 1st 
65% of the urban core of, Jap- of Japan, all of its cities, uh, in that sense, combined, 65% of the urban area was gone. But we had 2,000 more B-29s coming. We had 5,000 idle B-17s, another 4,000 or so B-24s. The British were open-ended on their offer to bring over Lancasters. In other words, May 9th, the war ends in Europe. So you have this period where you have this superb strategic bombing force, the Anglo-American, who have finally gotten it right with escort fighters and drop tanks on their fighters and uh, renew, new model, late models of the B-24, 17, and Lancaster. And in theory, you can bring 10,000 of them over and put them on Okinawa right. and run a mission a day so they could... They had the ability to drop an, the equivalent of a, an atomic bomb about every two weeks or even quicker. There could have been an option for Truman, which would have been to have dropped the bomb in what you would call a demonstration project. But I think what you're looking at in 1945, Victor, is what Donald Rumsfeld would later call shock and awe. Yeah. You want to you want to just shock the Japanese and, and just drive them to submission. And this is the segue, I think, of talking about modern times. Is the United States in 2017, Victor, capable of making the same decisions that this country made 75 years ago in terms of warfare? It depends on how far it's pushed. Uh, I think a lot of what we perceive as a modern therapeutic reluctance to confront evil would disappear very quickly if we found ourselves in an existential war like Pearl Harbor. We almost did after 9-11. And if you remember, there were some pretty tough talks that we gave some ultimatum to the Pakistanis, the Saudis. But if North Korea were to send a missile in our direction, I think that we would um, we would shed m- many of our reluctances that, that that seem to shackle us right now because it would be an existential question. And in the case, you know, of the atomic bomb, there was one other thing though, in the case of the atomic bomb that we weren't sure that we would have two or three bombs ready for about four or five months. So there was a big fear that the Japanese were going to say, and they all there was contention after Hiroshima and after Nagasaki that, well, we don't really think they have any more of these bombs. And if we just sort of wait them out, then they're going to look ridiculous and it's going to be, it's going to blow over. And after all, the fire bombs did a lot more damage than the the nuclear bombs. So they're really just a big fire bomb and they still have to invade. And we have 7,000 kamikazes. We have 2 million soldiers waiting for them. And we remember Okinawa, uh, was a lot, was the most lethal campaign in the Pacific. It was 50,000 casualties, 12,000 American dead, 17 ships sunk by kamikaze. So they thought that magnitude can be increased uh, by a magnet. I mean, by a magnitude of 10 or 12, we can have a 10 or 12 Okinawas. Right. Let me let me uh, make sure I'm clear about this. So you're saying that today's America is equivalent in some regards to December 8th, 1941 America in regards to North Korea and that for the United States to fight a war with North Korea, you're saying, in effect, we have to be struck first. I think so. I think if you look at primitive polling, or at least the perception, we didn't have Gallup in the way that we do now, et cetera. But most Americans did not want to go to war. They were willing to let London burn down. Right. And uh, they were not willing to save Poland. They were not willing to save France, as they had in World War One. They were not willing to get involved uh, with China much for all the romance about China. They did not really care about Southeast Asia. Their whole point was, we did this once, it didn't work. It's sort of what we're saying now. We went into Afghanistan, we went into Iraq, we, it didn't work. Mm-hmm. So now we're just sort of like that mindset. And But on December 8th, 
you can't find anybody who said on December 6th we shouldn't go to war against the Japanese and the Germans. There was nobody angry that said, wow, Germany and Italy declared war on us, and we didn't do anything to them, so maybe we should just concentrate on the people who did do something to us. And Roosevelt announces that we're going to put the Germans and Italians as enemy number one, even though they have not attacked us, and Japan, who has, in a surprise and sneaky fashion, they'll be number two, and nobody objected. I said, okay, we'll, get them all, we'll do them all at once. That kind of can-do, December 8th attitude. I think it's still there, but uh, it's, it's very American, very democratic. And Thucydides, the 5th century historian, said democracies uh, always react more vigorously when, when they're in extremists or in their 11th hour, and they're very good at it, he said. So I think it, the problem is that we're not communicating to North Korea as we didn't to the Japanese that a deterrent factor. When Japan talk, uh, attacked Pearl Harbor, we had the second largest fleet in the world, right. Atlantic and Pacific, and we had, as I said, one on order that would come in, and they didn't understand that. North Korea has no idea of the extent of U.S. military power or the likelihood that Donald Trump is not like a prior president, that he would fight back and he would respond, and we need to convey that so that they don't miscalculate and do something stupid. Where is the Pearl Harbor spirit today, Victor? Now, you were a child of the Korean War. You would have been born during the end of the Korean War, right? Yes. yes. So you would have come of age during Vietnam. I came of age, uh, I turned 18 in 72, I think. Yeah. Right at, okay, right at the, right toward the tail right, end of right Vietnam. Right at the end of it, yeah. All right. Do you remember people talking about Pearl Harbor? And all the time. Right? Yeah, all the time. I had a father who flew 40 missions over Tokyo in a B-29, and I was named after... Uh, his first cousin, who was adopted, so it was his brother uh, who was killed in Okinawa, 6th Marine Division. And then every relative I had fought, fought in in World War II, and that was just what you expected. We played in the Army, everybody talked about us, and we got lectures about World War II, and our female members of our family worked in factories or... It was the big event of their life, and that gave them a confidence, you know, the space about Vietnam or the space race, or it was really the highway system or the California Water Project. Pat Brown, they were all big Pat Brown, Harry Truman supporters. It was a Democratic Party that has no resemblance to today's. It was a, just as we won the war, we're going to change the environment or we're going to make life better for the most people we can. So my father grew up during World War II. He was born in 1934, so as a very young boy, he yeah. remembers the radio announcement, and he talked uh, growing up in Pittsburgh, which obviously was hugely affected by the war in terms of being a steel town, and scrap metal drives and things like that. And what he always emphasized to me, Victor, was the commonality of the experience. If you didn't have a family member who was serving, your job was perhaps affected in some way, your lifestyle was affected in terms of your automobile, your food, and so forth. Every Everybody had a stake in the war. I think so. I can remember my grandfather telling me that he kind of, uh, he was born in the house that I live in 1890, and he died in that same bedroom that I, that I have now in 1976 at the age of 86. And he said, you know, tragedy is I farmed for 50, 60 years, and I never made any money except 1917, 1918. 1943, 44, meaning the war. Commodities. Yeah. Everybody wanted dried raisins to ship over to the soldiers, and so they couldn't get enough of them. And then before and after the war, there was too many of them. But he was he was involved in the Raisin Administrative Committee and making sure that troops had in their C rations and K rations dried fruit. Everybody was involved. But 
And that generation, who your identity was, I mean, your race or your class or your gender was much more incidental than essential mm-hmm. to your character. So it, you weren't defined on your superficial appearance. You were defined as an American right. or a unique individual that could that was different. I'm not glorifying the isms and ologies of that age, but today we're sort of we be, we're retribalizing. We're we're tribal. That wh- how we look to for a stranger is what defines us. What color we are, what gender we are. If you assume that we are in a long siege in the war on terror, this is not going away in two to five to ten years that, that we're in this for the long haul right now. Victor, how do you create a commonality in this country? How do you create a community experience when it comes to engaging in what is an international conflict? Whereas right now, either you you serve in the military, you know people who serve in the military, but in terms of your life being affected by it, well, other than standing in line at the airport and having to be screened by TSA, how does terrorism really affect you? Well, it's very hard. It doesn't because the history of constitutional societies, whether it's Rome or Greece or Renaissance, Venice or Florence, or Europe in the 19th and 20th century, is that the combination of constitutional government and free market capitalism, uh, sanctity of private property, etc., free markets, it creates a level of affluence and leisure that uh, make so I, don't, I don't want to say seduce, but persuade the population that they have a birthright to be quite affluent without commiserate mm-hmm. responsibilities for their freedoms. And that means that it's very hard unless you're in an existential war. So an optional war, something that the society can wage, with, as you say, with a very small percentage of its manpower or capital, it's very hard to say to people, you all have to get behind the military. You all have to get in this war. And somebody's going to say, well, what happens in Afghanistan is not going to affect us in Palo Alto. I'm sorry. I'm just not going to worry about it. Right. And that's, but that's, that's not unique to the United States in 2017. Okay. I think what I'm getting at here is the concept of sacrifice. Yes. At the end of the day, either you're willing to sacrifice treasure, you're willing to sacrifice your lifestyle, you're willing to engage in some form of hardship for a greater good. But, Victor, if you're a political leader right now going to the American people, what sacrifices can you ask? Well, I mean, we're 20, 20, going to be $21 trillion in debt. And we could say, you know, I'm 64, and I could say very easily, well, even though I was promised I can draw Social Security at 62 and maybe optimally at 67, hey, Victor, just take a year, another two years, 68, 69. Right. That would solve the problem for now. And AARP will go to war. Yes, they would go. And I would be happy to do that. And people would, I think, you'd be surprised how many people would be willing to do that. But... Um, and the same thing with taxes and the same thing, et cetera, et cetera, because, as you know, the Republican Party are, are being castigated right now as starving children for this tax cut that is going to actually help the middle class. So, But these things are all rhetorical and they're all constru- constructs of the present, and they're all predicated that we're all going to die in our sleep at 90, 90 years old, right. healthy. And that's not the way history works because, believe me, this – country cannot continue to borrow it the way it is. And 20, once these interest rates get back to 5 or 6%, that $20 trillion debt is going to crowd out a lot of perks. And the same thing with a nuclear Iran or a nuclear North Korea. So I think we're sort of in a late 1930s la-la land. And we've sort of taken a vacation the last eight years. We doubled the debt under the last two presidents. We really sort of appeased people abroad. And I'm afraid that the tab is going to come due, and I, and I hope people are ready for it. 
Okay, so in terms of coming out of La La Land, December 7th, 1941, is that wake-up call for the United States? Is that splash of cold water? What's the equivalent in this day and age? Well, I think right away that we're going to uh, we're going to have some financial sacrifices to make. And we've been saying that for 30 or 40 years, mm-hmm. but if North Korea really does send a missile into Japan or, or South Korea, we're going to have to have a Manhattan-style uh, anti-missile defense pro- program, maybe... 10 or 12 times larger than anything we've c- comprehended in, in terms of military investment. And I mean something that could cost a trillion or two trillion dollars right away to protect not only the United States but our allies. And then if I, I, I'm 64, I can't remember any period in my life where we essentially had zero interest rates for eight, nine years. Right. That's not the norm. And that encouraged and financed this borrowing. And so that's going to come to an end, and that's going to crowd out a lot of things that people thought were essential to their life, whether it's taking a community federally funded bus to the supermarket or a, I don't know, a Medicare Prescription B benefit. So all these things we think are essential, they're really not in historical terms. And they can be scaled back if the alternative is Armageddon or it's financial collapse. Should we bring bring back the draft? Well, I used to think so, but because of the commonality, but I'm worried because the more research that comes out, you know, it, it's disappearing in Europe, which had it much more, mm-hmm. uh, much more, um, for a much longer time than we did. But the problem is that people self-select, so the cohort between 18 and 25 would probably be about 40 million people, 30 million people. The military needs about 3 million at the most. So if you ask somebody... Well, you're all going to register for the draft, and you have to have two years of what public service. Mostly the kids with college degrees and are educated and are affluent are going to want to, you know, go plant pine trees in the mountains or go to social welfare uh, alternatives. And the people who will go into the military are from lower muscular classes, and that means that that prime idea that it's going to be a melting pot and it's going to sort of a B-17 crew of World War II where everybody's got a different (laughs) accent and they're all kidding around that, you know, the Jewish guy from Harvard, the Italian guy from the Bronx. Carpazzo, Lowenstein. Yeah, yeah, the the, the (laughs) cowboy from Wyoming. That's not going to be achieved in today's, with a draft. The other question is, um, what we, in a high-tech society where man, our ships are fewer, our tanks are fewer, but they're much more sophisticated, do you really want to train somebody for a year and then with the expectation they're going to be gone the next year? So there's problems to it, but the idea that everybody should sacrifice for a couple of years for the common good is a good one. It just I don't know how we can do it in yeah, this I, age. I think the problem is this. On the one hand, you want a, a common experience that, that brings people together as a, as a nation, as a, as a group of people. Uh, but I think you just described the problem. What is the common experience? Well, back in World War II, it was two arms, or yes. in some way supporting the military. Who knows what the different definitions of national service will be? And also, Victor, my goodness, what would be the list of exemptions? If you go back to yeah. Vietnam and consider what you could you do to get out of Vietnam in this even more politically correct age, what would be the long, long oh, list there'd be, of reasons it would be, to serve? One of the things you grew up with, when we grew up with World War II veterans, I mean, there were 12.2 to 3, 12.3 people in the military, the people who are actually overseas in combat areas were about two million, and the people who actually fought the enemy was probably about a million. So we wore out 90 divisions in Europe. We wore out B-17 crews. We wore out B-29 crews. 
And most of the people in World War II were in the United, half of them were in the United States, and those who were deployed were in staffing. So after the war, we think, well, was that an issue? It was an issue. I remember my father saying, that guy over there got an exemption, and that guy got rich. He, he worked in his dad plane. He never did this. And this guy, and every, they were all talking about that until 1960. So even with that existential threat and even with a different generational mindset, it was hard to have a common experience. You'll see this, Victor, if you ever go to the White House Correspondents' Dinner in Washington. I've been there, yeah, once. Once, yeah. yeah. I was going to say it's a kind of I thing could never do. take it again. But exactly. Yeah. But you probably notice when they play the national emblem and they then do the uh, they do the military salute, the number of members who stood up. And what year mm. What year were you there? I was there in 2003. And it's funny you said that because I think that they do the play. I, I remember the flag salute and right. the and nobody almost nobody stood up right so i uh, went to those in the mid 1980s mm-hmm. and you'd get a, get a fair amount of people standing up uh because you still had world war ii yeah. uh, generation and you had korea and you had vietnam but today there is no world war ii scant number of korean veterans vietnamese veterans uh and now Iraq, Afghanistan veterans, but really a shockingly small number of people, considering there are 535 members of Congress who actually served. Yeah, and or or even sympathetic to those that did serve. And um, I think one of the stories of Iraq and Afghanistan that we miss is that for all of our neglect of those wars by the by the general public, that we actually look at the combat situations in which we put soldiers. They fought more effectively than almost any generation. They were wonder. I mean, what they did in Fallujah, I can. That was something that got akin to Choison Reservoir or or Iwo Jima. We kind of forget that sometimes. Right. So what's next up for you? So you now finished a book on World War II, 23 books in the docket. What's what's the next project? Uh, I'm working on a book on why, this is kind of germane to what we've been talking about, why war, some wars don't end, uh, Hundred Years' War, World War One. I, I, I guess if you said from 1918, all the German War to 1945, right. or uh, the Punic Wars for over a century. And what, what and that, I think that's very interesting of interest to us, what makes it impossible to win? And we think it's because of nuclear weapons or modern, postmodern ideas about conflict. I think it, it, there's, there's historical reasons because it's happened a lot in the past. And then um, I've been, there's a, Hillsdale College is, uh, um, I've been teaching there during my vacation from Hoover, so I, I've been talking to them a lot. and. Uh, I think one of the things we need in California is a traditional college undergraduate education that is a little bit more conservative, or at least it offers a conservative. And, and there's been some talks about maybe they would open some type of satellite campus or something. It's in the preliminary stages, but it's something I've been interested in trying to do what little I can to help them. That is an interesting idea. Let's say that I'm going on a long Christmas vacation, which personally I am. I'm going on a cruise in the Caribbean for seven days, which I'm looking forward to very much. Let's say, though, I'm an avid reader and I'm going to see and I want to read Victor Davis Hanson, start to finish. In addition to Second World Wars, what else should I buy? Well, there's a, a smaller book that I really liked. It was called Ripples of Battle, and it was on three battles, uh, an ancient one, Delium, Shiloh, and Okinawa, and why just a few hours changed people's lives to the effect that there was great art, literature, political ideologies that emerged out of that combat experience. Mm -hmm. And so whether it was Lou Wallace at Shiloh who was dealt badly uh, by Grant and he got so angry that he sort of made a metaphorical novel called Ben-Hur. So I I think that was fun writing, and I I don't—it was one of the books— 
that uh, didn't, you know, it didn't sell as well. So when you look back at all the books you've written, I don't know why I wrote a book, Carnage and Culture, that was a bestseller on the New York Times list and that. But I didn't think it would be. It was just it just coincidentally came out a month after 9-11, whereas other books that you think might have been better don't have a uh, signature event that piques the public's interest in what's otherwise history, which a lot, of, a lot of people don't read anymore, and military history, which still has sort of a... I think Margaret Atwood wrote that poem, The Loneliness of the Military Historian, and the first line is something to the effect that when you go to dinner, I won't, I won't frighten you. <laughs> you can sit here, but we, we look at military history as, as if uh, oncologists like cancer, and that's why they study it, you know. Exactly. The book, again, is Second World War is How the First Global Conflict Was Fought and Won. You can find it on Amazon. It's available in plenty of time for Christmas. This is under the great writing of Victor Davis Hanson. Victor, thanks for coming in today. Thank you very much for having me, Bill. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you wouldn't mind, spread the word. Convince your friends to give us a listen. The Hoover Institution is online at www.hoover.org. And while you're there, sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Victor Davis Hanson and his Hoover colleagues to you every workday. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover, I-N-S-T. Victor Davis Hanson, of course, is on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at VD Hanson. That's at V-D-H-A-N-S-O-N. He also has a website called Victor Davis Hanson Private Papers, and you can find that on the web at www.victorhanson.com. The book I mentioned is on Amazon.com. What else do we have to plug while we've got you here, Victor? What's that? What else should we promote while we've got you on air? <laughs> well, we have this Strategica Military History Group that has an online magazine called Strategica. Right. And every three weeks, and we haven't missed a deadline since our inception, 50th issue, we get the, I think, countries, if not some of the world's top military historians and analysts, to fight back and forth or debate issues such as will North Korea be deterred? Uh, is China the Japan of the 1930s? Questions like that in a historical context, and I think a lot of people would like to read that. Very good. And of course, the podcast, which is The Classicist with Victor Davis Hanson. Yeah. When's the next installment of that? I think we're going to do one tomorrow. Very good. So it'll be, it'll, it'll be, uh, well, we never know with Troy Sinek, and he, uh, it'll be a little bit on World War II, but mostly what um, interviewers such as yourself and everybody and myself as well, we want to uh, explain the inexplicable, and that's how Donald Trump got elected, whether he's going to get reelected, whether he's going to do well or badly in the midterms, and whether his agenda is... 90%, 80%, 70% conservative because everything is paradoxical and all the old conventional wisdom doesn't seem to apply anymore. And if you're game at some point in 2018, Victor, I'd love to have you back in the studio to talk about that. Um, yeah. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.